As I just mentioned, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 4. If you're not familiar with using a Bible, that's page 809 in the black Bibles in the seats in front of you. Page 809, Matthew chapter 4. Chapters are those larger numbers on the Bible text. And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Those are the smaller little numbers. Those weren't originally in the Bible, but they're there to help us easily find our place. In this passage that I'm about to read to you, we're going to come across a new character in our series through Matthew. At least the first time we're going to see him in his uh, face-to-face. That's the devil. And I'm kind of curious for how many people either here or just in general in the world think that the devil just, you know, doesn't exist. Or that this is part of why the Bible's just supposed to be taken figuratively. It's more of like a fairy tale. And so this is one of those things that maybe either Christians get embarrassed about or skeptics come and look at Christians and scoff at and say, oh yeah, there's, there's no such thing as a devil. And uh, I think th- there's not only that question in my mind, but there's also the question of what, what do you picture in your mind when you think of the devil or Satan? And the reason I ask is because when you go through Christian history, there's a variety of artwork throughout Christian history about what the devil looks like. And so it seems like even in the last 2,000 years, the way Christians and people have depicted the devil is, is very different. And so what you have in your mind may be different from the person sitting next to you. And here's the one thing I want to make sure all of you leave here today. is not necessarily grasping in our minds and our visions who the devil is and what he looks like, uh, but actually is to take the lesson from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Screwtape Letter, says there's, there's two errors that we make in the world. We either neglect the devil and the work of spiritual demonic forces altogether and think that naively nothing else is going on behind the evil in this world. Or we make the opposite error and we make too much of it. And I'm hoping that through this text, As we look at Jesus, we will be able to proceed forward in our lives and not neglect the devil and his temptations and his tactics, know how to face him, but not make so much of it where it's like, oh, the devil, it's all his fault, the devil made me do it, etc., etc. So let's turn with our Bibles to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and see if we can see a way forward in this world full of evil and darkness. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, I think in order to understand this passage and how to apply it to our lives, we need to look backwards, because this passage points us backwards. I think we need to look forwards, and then finally upwards. That's going to be the outline of today's message. We need to look backwards with what this passage is pointing us back to. As we understand what it's pointing us back to, that will help us move and look forward to what this passage is pointing us forward to, and then ultimately upwards. First, backwards. This passage takes us back to the previous story in Matthew chapter 3. If you look in Matthew chapter 3, we studied this last week, but for those of you that weren't with us, I want to just read these last few verses. See if you can start to see the connections between this story that I just read and the previous one. Starting in verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then right in chapter 4, verse 1, then... See, I don't think there would have been a chapter break. I think you would have just kept reading when you originally got Matthew's work here on Jesus. And you would have seen the connection between these two stories. There was the Spirit of God in the baptism. Then, a spiritual battle in the wilderness. There was a voice from heaven, chapter 3. Then, a voice from hell. A voice from heaven speaks only once. But the voice from hell speaks again and again and again. In chapter 3, there is great comfort in these words, isn't it? The Spirit is coming on him. What, what that must have done to warm his heart when he heard heaven open up and the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. But then, there is conflict. Jesus is at a point of great strength in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, he is at a point of terrible weakness. Consider the contrast. In chapter 3, he is surrounded and immersed with water. In chapter 4, he is in the wilderness, like a desert, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So then what is this relationship between these two stories? Does does that have just a cute little connection? Oh, that was cute, Phil. No, no. Does there something that you can say? No, there's a profound truth for us in this. Think about the links between spirit and spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the very spirit. That's linking these two stories. Also notice the link between the way that the tempter... In verse 3 says, if you are the Son of God. What was the very last words we see in chapter 3, verse 17? This is my beloved Son. The, The beloved Son of God is then being questioned, being asked, so if you're truly the Son of God, well then you should surely do this, right? 
And then you drop down your eyes and you see that he does it again. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The links between the Spirit coming down on him and then the Spirit leading him into this wilderness. And then the links between Son of God from the voice of heaven then being questioned from the voice of hell. Are you starting to see how this applies to your life? How many of you in this room have been baptized as a Christian? Not asking for necessarily you all to tell me, but in general, like, how many of you have been baptized? Think to yourself, you've been baptized? After your baptism of saying, I'm all in, I'm following Jesus, everything goes easy, doesn't it? Why the chuckles? Why the, why the shaking no of the head? See, for some of you here today, if you've never been baptized, Christianity is not a message that offers, come to Jesus and then peace will always follow you in human circumstances. Everything will always go smooth and easy, roses and butterflies. No more suffering, wealth and prosperity. This is not the message that we're seeing here in this text. The Spirit comes upon Jesus, and then the Spirit leads him into weakness. How many of you have heard the whispers of the tempter as you've looked at your circumstances and felt, no, I don't think God really loves me. See, this is not just some age-old story 2,000 years ago. This, my friends, is our story almost every day. The Spirit of God comes upon us He does not take us away from the fight and the battle. He calls us into it. And if anything, life gets more difficult because of where the Spirit of God's going to lead you. And you're going to hear these voices again and again. So my friend, do not completely dismiss them. Do not completely neglect that there are spiritual forces behind these things. But don't make everything of them. I want you to imagine right now, if you could be at a point in your life where you were completely filled with the Spirit, whatever that might mean in your mind, just picture it. Imagine that you knew everything you could possibly know about spiritual truths, the Bible, memorized frontwards and backwards in every language possible. Imagine you had just sweet, constant fellowship with God the Father. Your prayer times were like the Shekinah glory coming down from heaven, like that. Is that what your prayer time was like this morning? I didn't think so. But imagine every single day, day after day, you were hearing not just the Bible, but God's audible voice speaking to you. Wouldn't you think, that'd be it? I would take that. Sign me up. Do you then think that if that were you, that would mean no more troubles, no more trials, no more tests, no more suffering? If so, my friend, you are in a different book. It's not the Bible. You're in a different religion. It's not Christianity. If that's what you think religion of Christianity is and the Bible is trying to communicate, then you have been mistaken. Jesus receives the Spirit of God, and he goes into the wilderness. He suffers. He gets weak. Becoming a Christian does not mean our kids will behave perfectly or even semi-perfectly. It doesn't mean that we'll never get sick. 
It doesn't mean that you will get that raise or promotion. It doesn't mean that your marriage will suddenly become romantic, just like you've always dreamed. Just think about this for a moment. If the perfect, sinless Son of God, who had the fullness of God's Spirit poured out on him, was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to face temptations, why would you think your life looks so much different if you say, I follow Jesus? How might this change your perspective when those trials come? As if something surprising is happening, as Paul's going to say later in his epistles. Don't, don't be surprised, my friends, by the fiery trials coming upon you. Why, why would any of us in this room be surprised? Especially for those of you who call yourselves Christians. Just think, before you were a Christian, you didn't have to deal with sin as much. You didn't have to engage in the battle of temptation as much. You could just give in to it whenever you wanted, all the time. So not only is there still suffering and trials and pains in this world, just that everybody experiences, but now you have this inner toil within. It gets harder, my friends. That's why Jesus says it is a daily taking up of our crosses. But this is not the only way this text of Scripture points us backwards. The first way it points us back is just to the previous story, chapter 3. But if we're careful readers of Scripture, we will know that this story is pointing us much further backwards to a story that was read to you earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8, to the story of Israel. Jesus is the, the one who passes through the waters and spends 40 days in a wilderness. Even just a very elementary reading of the Bible, this should start stirring up thoughts in your minds. Passing through the waters, 40 days, 40 years, and a wilderness. You see, Moses and Elijah both spent time praying and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It could be that that's the reference that this story is pointing back to. But more likely, this is a reference to the whole nation of Israel, the people of Israel, who passed through the waters of the Red Sea as they were delivered out of slavery and then spent 40 years in the wilderness and they were tested. We had read for us earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Tested. That's the same word here as tempted. They were tested. So this should sound familiar to us. We should ask, how did that people, how did they do at this test? Well, I'm sorry to spoil the story if you've never heard it, but they failed miserably. Failed miserably. And do you see what Matthew is now doing? He is telling you that Jesus continues in this story of Israel, but where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. If you don't think this is what Matthew is doing, or whether or not you think Jesus actually even sees himself this way, let me just point a little detail that you may not know. If you read our passage and you're following along carefully, every time the tempter, that voice from hell is speaking to God, to Jesus, Jesus responds back. Did you notice that? And he keeps saying, it is written. What is he referring back to? Well, the Old Testament scriptures that he would have known and studied and probably had memorized, which is why he's out in the wilderness. He's not in a synagogue. He's not in a temple. And he just knows them off the top of his head. And all three of these scriptures are from the same book, the book of Deuteronomy. And all three of these scriptures have relation to the testing of the wilderness 
in their context. So this is not just Matthew's agenda to say, look, Jesus is the continuation of the Israel story. That is Jesus' understanding of who he is himself. Every passage points you back as Jesus speaks back to Satan. Now, for some of you here today, if you're saying, well, that's really good news for Jews or Israelites, Jesus is continuing the Jewish story, and he is now their Messiah. But whoop-de-doo, what is that for me? I'm not Jewish. I'm not an Israelite. Well, then you need to realize that this story points back to a further story yet. Not just Israel, but another couple, another story of people being tempted by the voice of a serpent in a garden and being questioned. Did God really say? Are you sure that God really loves you? Are, are you God's son and daughter? Do You see, this story points us back not just to chapter 3 or the wilderness wanderings in Israel, but it points us back to the story of Adam and Eve, the first story in the Bible. And what's interesting about that story is that there, circumstances cannot be pointed to to say, well, God, of course we were going to fail. Look at this horrible situation we've been putting in. Paradise. Beautiful weather. Wonderful food every day. Whatever we could choose from. Every tree was available except one. Two people, naked frolicking around, enjoying the blissful, sin-free delights of marriage. Like, what could they point to to say, but, but God, this happened, and so this was my excuse. Compare this story in Genesis 3 with the story of Jesus. Think how much harder it would have been. Turn those stones to bread. What did verse 3 say? He was hungry. Well, that's an understatement, if I've ever read one. I fasted for one full week one time. You know what I was like on eight day? I was a little more than hungry, you know? Imagine 40 days. I, I couldn't even think of it. And some of you that are here, you might be skeptics. There, you, you can live without food for 40 days. People have done it. After 40 days, it doesn't seem to go as well. But you see, in the same way that Adam and Eve failed, the same way that Israel failed, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, oh, and so much more, the head of all creation, the start of a new creation, the representative of all humanity, Jesus. So you might say, I'm not a Jew. Jesus, being the Jewish Messiah, doesn't sound good to me. Well, are you a human? Because that's what this story is trying to tell you. Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the representative of a new humanity. The only human who has ever passed the test. The only human who has succeeded where everyone else failed. That's Jesus. He is the faithful son, the new and better everything. And it is only through Jesus that we can make our way forward. Do you see why the first point? If you want to make your way forward in this life and pass the test in your life, well, then you need to look back. And realize that you, just like Adam and Eve, you, just like the nation of Israel, you have failed. Look back in your life. Have you seriously passed every test that's been put before you? 
lived a perfect, sinless life. Well, gosh, nobody's perfect. But what if that's the standard? Then you need a substitute. You need a new representative. You, you need grace and forgiveness from the God whom you failed to test. And Jesus points us that way forward, my friends. But you have to look backwards first. So now, let's consider how he did it. How did he pass the test so that we can follow his example and then receive his substitutionary work on our behalf? So secondly, how does this story point us forward? Well, it points us forward by helping us see the way forward in our life is the same way that Jesus passed his test in the wilderness. Look at verse 4 again. But he answered... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I mentioned that this is a quotation from Deuteronomy. Now, what's quite ironic about this Deuteronomy passage is that it's referring to when God actually provided bread falling down from heaven for a people in the wilderness that then refused to obey God and therefore were judged for their many failures and sins. But notice Jesus doesn't complain about his circumstances. He quotes the Bible. He has God's word fresh on his heart and on his lips. He quotes God's word from memory not just once, but twice and three times. Every time the temptations come, he is able to say, no, this is what's true. Don't try and get me to question whether or not I'm truly the son of God. I am the son of God. I know that. You know that. And here's the truth. Notice that in the second passage of Scripture, Satan quotes the Bible to him. It's like, well, that first strategy didn't work. Offer something very, you know, alluring, physical temptations. He, he's hungry. So all of you that have ever experienced just the natural physical impulse, whether it be a physical hunger or a sexual impulse or some sort of coveting desire inside of you, I want this physical thing in the world. Jesus has felt that. That's why it says in the scriptures, he has been tempted in every way that you were. He has felt physical impulses, and he says, listen, we do not live on this earth by just merely appeasing the physical appetite. We do not live by bread alone. Oh, do you need bread? Yes, you do. He had to eat after this, and he did. But is that how we truly live in this world? Is that the way forward? And the answer is no. We do not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And so he quotes the word of God back to Satan when Satan tries to use the word of God. Okay, the word of God. And so you see in verse 6, he says, he will command you as angels concerning you. And so Satan starts twisting scripture. He uses a passage of scripture that says God's going to provide protection for the nation of Israel. And so he says, look, God's going to provide for you. Just jump off. Surely, God will save you. And so Satan has done what so many people have done which is take the Bible and use it for their own purposes and not actually listen to what it says. This is not the way we live by the word of God. This is not the way forward. It's just use the Bible and say, well, okay, so the Bible is an important key to move forward. And then we just use it however we please to make our own points and our agendas made. This, my friends, is what almost every TV preacher I have ever heard has done with the Bible to sell people a Christianity that is all about health, wealth, and prosperity. 
to say that the way forward is not a way to the cross. The way forward is a way to happiness now. Your best life now, that is. You see, the way forward in the life of a Christian is to know and be able to speak God's word accurately and faithfully the way God originally meant it to be used. We must know God's word then. We must meditate on it day and night. Embassy Church, do you want to move forward into 2018 as a church that is marked by faithfulness, that can go through the temptations and through the wilderness and through the trials? Do we want to be that kind of church? I would hope so. Well, then we must realize how committed we need to be to reading, listening to, meeting with other Christians, to study the Bible and to speak God's word into each other's lives in a faithful way. We need to stay committed to attending church on Sundays, not because there's some sort of brownie points you get for coming to church. Well, pat yourself on the back. You made it to church today. Your, your points are racking up for getting to heaven. That is awful, awful teaching. Get that idea out of your head. If there's any sort of encouragement for you to be at church on a regular basis, it's so that you can hear the Word of God. It's so you can be encouraged and built up from the Bible. That's it. It's not because there's rules. You've got to follow these rules. If you follow these rules, then get, get yourself your ticket to heaven. Now, we stay committed to the church on a regular basis because churches like this, at least, other churches like ours that are committed to God's Word, if you open your bulletin, many of you will see that on the left-hand side of the order of service, you'll say, we read the Word, we pray the Word, we sing the Word. You know what that means? It means that everything we're doing is trying to preach to you, teach to you, say to you truths from God's Word. Even the songs we were singing just now. Did you hear them? And how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. Maybe that song will get stuck in your head and you can all week meditate on the truth from God's word that his grace is sufficient when fiery trials come. When this week the spirit of God leads you into the wilderness. Or probably my favorite song we sang this morning. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Is there guilt in there? Did you look back today? Is there reasons for you to feel guilty? Might the tempter start whispering, yeah, you've got reasons to be guilty when you look backwards. So what do you do? What's the way forward when you realize, I am guilty, and I feel it every day? So many people I talk to are this way. They're still dealing with the guilt from their failures. The way forward, my friends, is in the very song we just sang. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied. He looks on him and he pardons me. If you're not good at memorizing the Bible, then memorize that. It rhymes. It's put to music. You can look it up on YouTube. You can download it onto your iPod. Just that one line, my friend, would be a very useful thing to get stuck in your mind and heart this week. Upward I look and see him there. 
This is what we do as Christians throughout the week, not just on Sundays. We do not want to be the sort of church that is only about, well, I did my duty on Sunday, I checked that box off, but a church that is filled as a community around God's Word every single day. Not just meditating on it as an individualistic, pietistic view, like this is all about me and Jesus kind of Christianity. Did you realize in our earlier scripture reading in the service, when we read God's word from Hebrews chapter 3, it said this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So then exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every day. Every day, not just every Sunday. Did you catch that in the Bible? It's commanding us to exhort one another. Meet together for Bible studies on Tuesday nights in houses like the Fellabombs community group. Or Wednesday night here upstairs, we have a Bible study. Soon on Thursdays, we're going to try and get another group started that takes the sermons and discusses them with people. If you're interested in that, let me know. I'll be at the door at the back. There's information that I can give you about when that's starting and, and how to get involved. One of the ways I've been trying to think through this to help us understand what does it look like for us to be a church together, I was thinking a lot of it kind of like being in a science class. I have no reason to love science class. I didn't think I did very well in science, particularly. That's not my expertise. But here's, here's my thought. When you go to science class, there's the lecture and then there's the lab. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Like when you do experiments in the lab room. Now those were my favorite fun parts. It was like, oh yeah, this is going to be cool. We're going to like dissect stuff or, you know, blow something up. Who knows? So in these lectures, you're supposed to listen. And this was the part I probably didn't do as good as others. But there's the lectures. And then you're supposed to go to the lab room and apply the things in community with partners for what you just heard. I think this is a helpful model for you to think about church here at Embassy. For those of you who are members of this church and for those of you that might be interested in what a healthy church should look like. So consider this your Sunday morning lecture. Now that's a bad word in some respects because I don't want you to think this is only teaching. There's a a sense to which this portion of the service is still a continuation of worship. When you hear God's word, it should delight the soul, but I hope you get the idea. There's a teaching, there's a, a worshipful sermon given to fill up the mind and the heart so that all week long, we as lab partners can meet together and apply these things to our lives. This is what I want to see in 2018, an increased vigor of recovenanting ourselves in our fourth year as we're about to come to it to say, this is what we should do. Francis Chan's a pastor in the California area. He's pastored a couple different churches, he gives a a very helpful, memorable illustration of this. He says, imagine as a parent. And so I was thinking, yeah, this this could work. I've I've seen this happen before. Not exactly like he's saying, but imagine you tell your kids to go clean their room. I've had to do that a few times, right? And so I tell my kids, go clean your room. And the kids go, and my wife and I decide, hey, they're they're busy. They're cleaning the room. Let's just reconnect. Let's talk. We're chatting. And then there they're off in the room. They're cleaning this up. A good hour or so has gone by. They're kind of quiet. Normally, it's kind of crazy when they do that kind of stuff, but like, you know, it's quiet. So I, I go check in on them. Like, I wonder how they're doing in the room cleaning. And I go in there, and the room is not clean. And one of the children speaks up and says, Dad, I do want to let you know. For the last hour, we have been dissecting your command for us. 
Eliana here decided to uh, translate it into Latin. And uh, we found out the root words of go clean your room actually meant this. And so we had a discussion about whether or not we were supposed to clean our room or do we even have a room? You know, because really this is your house, you know? And so we didn't know if we should actually clean our room because, you know, this is all actually God's stuff. And so we had this really deep theological discussion and you see where this is going, right? Is mom and dad pleased? Do I say, well, good job, children. Well, let's translate that into Greek now. No. Sometimes it is very important for us to make sure that the commands are understood. And I am not trying to say that every command in the Bible is as simple as go clean your room, but there are a lot that are. How many times do we just meet together as lab partners and just talk about the lecture and not actually get to work at applying God's Word to our lives? So as we gather throughout the week, my friends, let's not be the kind of church that is only about keeping it up here in our heads, but is willing to kind of go in and have the harder conversations at times, be open and confess to one another. You see, this, this story points us forward about the importance of speaking God's word in the community of our church. This is the kind of church we want to be. And so I want to encourage all of you to be a church that is committed to speaking the word of God through our preaching, through our praying to God and to one another, through our confession of sin, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, through our celebrating the goodness of God in our lives, and through our counseling to one another in the deep, dark days of the trials. There's a second way I think this passage points us forward, not just in how the Word of God should be central in our life. The second way is that it points us forward to a life of service. A life of service. And you might think, I don't think that this story points that way. And it's because this story isn't to be isolated. It is to be taken within the greater story of Matthew. You ever read a book and realized that there was something introduced at the beginning part, and then later it picked up on that theme. You said, oh. See, th this story in Matthew 4 points forward to two stories in Matthew later. So turn with me. Matthew 16, just a few pages to two stories. This is on 822, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 23. Now, before we read this story, let me just remind you real quick, there's this phrase in Matthew chapter 4 that you should have freshly ringing in your ears. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now listen to this story. From this, verse 21 of chapter 16 on page 822. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, but then on the third day, raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, oh, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Or we could translate it, be gone, Satan. 
You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Should that sound familiar? The voice from hell did not stop speaking, and this time it came from Jesus' closest friend, Peter. Isn't that interesting? Do you, do you realize what all three of these temptations are trying to do? They're trying to derail Jesus from his mission to serve the entire world by dying on a cross. He is planning to lay down his life for others, not play tricks to try and become the Messiah. Oh, let's go up to the top of the temple, and if you just throw yourself down and angels catch you, well, then everybody will follow you then, won't they? That's not the way to do it. That's what he's saying. No, that's not the way. There is a different way. The devil's talking when the voice is tempting in your head and saying, now, now when Pastor Phil and you're reading the Bible says that we should serve one another, lay down our lives for each other, he didn't mean like it would cause sacrifice. Do you hear those voices sometimes? Oh, this might inconvenience you a little bit. You ever heard that voice? Maybe from a friend? Why are you getting so involved with those church people anyway? Don't you, you need a life outside. God wouldn't really want you to do that, would he? Could you imagine what would happen if Jesus listened to the voice of Peter? What if he listened to those mocking him as he hung on the cross? In Matthew chapter 27, you're going to hear the very same question. If you're truly the Son of God, he said he was the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, then you could, you could pull yourself down off of that cross right now. Does that sound familiar as well to our story? Do you see how this story in Matthew 4 points us forward? Not to just to Matthew 16, but ultimately to the very concluding end of Matthew's story. Jesus' death on a cross, because that is the way he's going to serve. That is the way he's going to become the Messiah who defeats sin and Satan. Matthew wants you to know that the wilderness temptation was not a one-time story for Jesus. It was a repeated event throughout his life as people continued to take him away from his mission to serve and lay down his life. And you, my friend, you will continue to hear those whispers in your ear. Surely, surely if you're one of God's children, you shouldn't have to sacrifice so much. No, no, you, sh you should enjoy. You're, you're a prince or princess of the king. You should live like a, in a palace. Have you ever sensed God leading you to do something to serve someone and your friend or family member talked you out of it? You gotta make sure you take care of yourself. Now this message can be distorted. You can take my words and completely overwhelm somebody. The Bible talks about rest and balance in our lives. But the way forward, I believe, for all of us in this church is to not just speak God's word, but to serve in the strength that God's provide as we listen to one another, as we give of ourselves sacrificially, as we volunteer in the community and in this church, as we invest in others' lives, and as we go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Why would we do this? Why would people who are here today, many of them Christians, many of them who have been baptized, why would you willingly choose a road that you know is going to be more difficult? 
Or were you sold a, a different gospel when you came to faith in Jesus? Is this church full of people that are just dipping their foot into the baptismal waters, or are we all in? Because if you're all in, you should know that that means suffering, that means serving, that means sacrifice, that means pleasures temporarily here, eternal pleasures forevermore. In just a moment, as this service concludes, we're going to take two people to the baptismal waters. Are any of you thinking, don't do it? Don't do it. Come on. No, you heard what he said. It's going to get worse. It's going to be difficult. Should they go all in? Why? That's our last point. We take this text and we look backwards. It points us forward and ultimately it points us upwards. Upwards. Notice the progression of these temptations. There's a temptation of the the quick fleshly pleasures. He was hungry. Here, want something to eat? Show off your power. Show off the miracles. And then finally, look at the last one. These stories are going up, up, up. In the third story, he takes him, and what I would believe is just a vision. So throughout the Bible, there's visionary experiences. So I don't think that he was actually literally on top of the temple. Some people do. They could have gone for a long walk from the wilderness, a several-day journey, and walked over there. Or it could be referring to a vision. And that's the way I'm understanding this story. And in the vision, they go up. In the last temptation, they go up to a high mountain, and he shows them all the kingdoms of this world. And at this point, there's a bit of a debate. Is Satan lying and bluffing? I can give you all of these kingdoms if you just bow down to me. That's what some think. I don't think so. I think throughout the story of Scripture, Satan is referred to as the God of this age, as the prince and the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. I think he actually owns possession of the political realm. I think he owns possession of and leads and deceives the kingdoms of this world. So I don't think this is any bluff. I think Satan is truly offering, listen, you bow down to me and I'll give you all of them right now. You don't have to do that cross thing. I mean, why extend this out? Why make this so hard for yourself? You could have it now. And what does Jesus do? He says, be gone, Satan. The key to all of temptations is to realize that it is an act of worship. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You need to realize, my friends, that we live in a world that is still ruled by the God of this age, the ruler and the prince of the power of the air. So when he offers Jesus all these kingdoms, it's not just a bluff. He's offering it to you every time you're tempted. Don't you want it now? Don't you want to experience the kingdoms and the power and the pleasures of the world right now? And Jesus says, no. I'm not bowing down to you, Satan. You will understand what sin is in your lives if you start realizing that it is ultimately an issue of bowing before the true king. There is no crown of glory unless there is first a crown of thorns. Do you realize that Jesus bowing down to God the Father leads to greater pain and suffering? Bowing down to Satan would make it quick and easy. 
give it to him right now. But he doesn't do it. Why? Why? Because he knows. He knows that in God's kingdom, going down first always leads up. That's the truth that you have to take home with you today. The way up means first going down. If you look over in Matthew chapter 5 on page 809, you'll see this in a few weeks as we consider the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor, that's a blessing? Blessed are the mourning, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger. Does that sound familiar? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will truly be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is about to tell us? The way down, by submitting ourselves in service, always leads up. Blessing will come to the peacemakers. Blessing will come to the poor in spirit. Blessing will come to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is why people get themselves into the baptismal waters. They go down because they know that the pastor, if he has any sense to him, will pull them back up. Because it's, it is a picture of what happens when a person becomes a Christian. They commit themselves down in a life of servitude and humility. Because we know that God opposes proud people, but he lifts up the humble. So why should our baptismal candidates symbolize their going down and dying to their old ways of life and dreams? And all the kingdoms of this world, beauty, power, and strength, are they crazy? Am I crazy right now? Do I sound crazy right now? I'm asking. For some of you that are thinking, like, man, I just came because some friend encouraged me to come, and this guy is talking crazy. here's, Here's what I want you to really think about. No. In all politeness, you would be crazy if you really think that the kingdoms of this world of power and beauty and might and strength, that those will last. That's crazy. This world is a fleeting shadow, a vapor that comes and goes. Have you not experienced in your own life how you could get a lot of money and then it's quickly gone? 2008, sound familiar to anybody? Losing lots of money? Or how about when you get the great job and then you lose it? You have all of the happiness and joy you could have in this world because you got all of these things and then you lost it. The kingdoms of this world are telling us the message that the the whispers of Satan always are just lies. They do not satisfy. They do not lead to hunger, a, a, a satisfaction from our hungers that are deep within. You would be crazy if you do not choose to join them in the baptismal waters. The way down into the water will always be the way up in the Christian life. After death, there's always a resurrection and an ascension to the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the other side of daily service and dying leads to everlasting joy and satisfaction as you reign and rule over all the kingdoms of this world? That's the message of Christianity, by the way. 
First down, but then up. What did the song say? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look. Up. It leads us up. Look. Set your, your gaze up. Look at things upward. He said no to Satan, not because he did not want to rule and reign over all the kingdoms. It was Satan was offering the wrong way to rule and reign over the kingdoms. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. Because the way of the cross is the way for the true Son of God to become the true King over all creation. There's good news, my friends. After Jesus died on that cross and he went down into hell itself, you could say, three days later he rose again. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father. And right now, he is reigning and ruling. Look up. The story points us up. There is a way to receive the kingdoms of this world. And it's by first going down with Jesus. Let me conclude by giving you these words from Philippians 2. But Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Did you catch that? Therefore, because of him going down as a servant and humbling himself all the way to the point of death on the cross, therefore, God lift him up. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not crazy. It's the only thing that makes sense. If Jesus is, in fact, Lord right now, reigning and ruling. Let's pray together.